Welcome to the Pursuit of Learning podcast. I'm your host, Clint Murphy. My goal is for each of us to grow personally, professionally, and financially one conversation at a time. To do that, we will have conversations with subject matter experts across a variety of modalities. My job as your host will be to dig out those golden nuggets of wisdom that will facilitate our growth. Join me on this pursuit. I am always interested in how to build workplaces that are fun, energetic, and productive. Places you want to be. Places you are comfortable to stretch, to fail, and to succeed big. Today's guest, Colin Hunter, talks about the importance of failing early, failing often, and failing forward. He shows us how to be a better leader and how to build a playground in our workplaces. Enjoy the show. Colin, good morning and welcome to the Pursuit of Learning podcast. I'd love to start with you on what is motivating you in your life right now? And what are two or three things you want to get across to our listeners in today's conversation? Morning, Clint. Our afternoon from the UK, loving a bit of snow yesterday, so uh, we're getting into winter. I don't know. We don't do winter like the Canadians do, but uh, we're getting there. What's motivating me is we're kicking off a new project called the 500, so that's motivating me. So it's looking at um, undiscovered leaders, neurodiversity, poverty, other areas. So we're looking at increasing equity in career choices. And we've been working on that for about three months since the book was launched. Um, book was launched in September, been working on that. So yeah, that's what I'm working and motivated by that. And fascinating, just having conversations around how we might work with prisons, how we work, might work with charities. And that is, that's getting me bouncing out of bed in the morning. It's also keeping me awake at night, Clint, as well. But yeah, it's uh, getting me bouncing out of bed in the morning. So yeah. And the three things for, uh, I suppose the the three things in my learning spectrum, one is hero's journey. So, and some people say, oh, hero's journey, it's been it's been done. But I still believe in the hero's journey. And uh, I've been working on that principle in my life about how I take a, a step outside the house every day on a new journey and a new way of thinking. So that's one thing. And linked to that, just been listening to a high performance podcast and there's a, a rugby player from Dan Carter from New Zealand All Blacks, but um, be listening to the podcast. And there's this concept of how do you get leaders to, and, and individuals to start to sail their ship out of the harbor rather than playing it, sailing around the harbor? How do you get them to seek rougher seas? And there's some great pieces in there about purposeful practice, which is the third thing in there. So Dan Carter did a lot of work on, uh, on this podcast about sharing some of the principles he holds, rigor, discipline, and purposeful practice. So those are the three things, Clint. Yeah. That is going to give us a lot to dive into as we work through. I love it. And just to take you back to the 500 project. So Colin, how is that project going to work and what are you looking to achieve through it? Is it growing leaders, finding leaders and working with them? What's, what's the program doing? So we, we see it as two, two streams of this. One is if you look at most organizations and you look at diversity and and think about equity and inclusion. There's a there's a race for talent. There's a great leave happening 
in organizations. And we're only touching about 25% of the talent that is out there due to inequity in terms of career choices, university, college, but just understanding. So what we're trying to do on one stream is give organizations a, a better chance to train their leaders, senior vice presidents, vice presidents, to talent, to understand how they can get a better understanding of the wider impact on society of what they do, but also the wider challenges of society. As I said, around the prisons, around, you know, there's there's projects going on where prisoners are starting to work for organizations on outsourcing, which gives them a better opportunity when they come out. There's neurodiversity work going on at the moment, which is starting to champion people who, who in the past would have been seen as difficult because of some of the behavioral characteristics, but actually now we understand a lot more about neurodiversity than starting to think about how we champion, how we understand, how we are forgiving in some ways, but also encouraging of the, the beauty of their, their different behaviors and different ways of thinking in there. So one is the organizational level. And then the second is, is more contact with the community. So what we're trying to do with the project is involve, almost if you think about mentor-mentee, involve the mentees in the design of the project. So, and not a case of, well, here's some prison leavers or here's some neurodiverse people, have a group of people gather around and have a look. Cause I, you know, that's what some people look at. It's a bit like going, when I used to, to travel to South Africa. And one of the things I avoided was going to places on tours like Soweto. Cause I always felt it was, you know, not the thing to do is to wander around the tour bus to see how uh, apartheid had changed and but actually going and talking to people about their stories in Soweto were more important to me. And it's the same thing with us is how do we get people to tell their stories about what their challenges are um, and some of the things they just don't know. I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, when you mentor somebody from that background, it's the amount that they don't know that we are privileged in, in a lot of our environments to know that you want them to, to be able to explore. So it's, it's sharing of knowledge. And in theory, therefore, it's sharing of power to make the right career choices for them and for all of us. Yeah. And so then you're, to your point, you're working with both the organizations to get people in the door and then working with the people in the door to ensure that they're successful, which should hopefully set up the program to continue to grow and get more people in the door and build bridges through the area you live and hopefully expand it beyond that. Yeah, we we want to create a movement, Clint. And, you know, if you think about leadership programs or programs, development programs, they tend to be a finite result. You've got three months of a program and then we don't touch that person or see that person again for a while. What we're trying to do is create a, a system. Um, we're a big believer in practices that lead to habits, that lead to systems, that fuel systems. And as James Clear in Atomic Habits says, we don't f- rise to the level of our objectives, we fall to the level of our systems. So how do we influence those systems? And that's what we're trying to do. So we're hoping that it just takes off. There's a movement and, it's, um, and it starts to explode around the, the world in terms of its capability. And we're getting a lot of positive press around it because it's different. We're going to give people immersions into areas of society that potentially they've never had before or industries that they've never had before either. Yeah. And Colin, you just said something that was one of the things that jumped out at me when I was reading your book. And that was James Clear's line about not rising to the occasion, but falling to our systems and habits. And it felt like a lot of what I read in your book tied to systems and habits. Can you let the listener know how much of an influence did that quote have on you? 
And, and why? What was it about it that really drove some of the writing and some of the systems that you've created? I think it, for me, it was massive. Two things. One is his story about being hit in the head by a baseball bat, let go accidentally by a friend at college. And then his having to, to get his academic levels back up and his sporting prowess levels back up. He talked about the journey and the purposeful practice each day. And therefore, he talked about the systems he needed to create in his life. He'd been gifted before. He was a gifted individual academically and sporting-wise, and he had to, to build that up. And I go back to, to my background. So I had a breakdown when I was 30, ended up in my parents' house um, in floods of tears. And in our family, we don't do tears. Yeah, that wasn't what you did. But the GP or doctor at the time said to me, you've got to find a way of using your energy in a better way, Colin. You've got a finite amount of energy. How do you sustain it, grow it, and develop it? And therefore, I started to put two and two together with the James Clear book and say, so hold on, my first system I need to address is my energy, which I work on every day. I know it's an infinite game, so I'm, I'm always going to be working on this for the rest of my life. And particularly as you get older, Clint, there's a piece about stretching, there's a piece about diet, there's a piece about mental strength. But there were certain things that I just needed to put into disciplines. And then I thought about leadership and I thought, well, hold on a second. Whether it's my relationships on networking on a sales basis, or it's my looking at my fresh ideas, or whether it's looking at the growth of my people uh, in there, or it's about the story that we're telling. Uh, they all need work, and they need systems that fuel those those pieces of work. So I started to work it up, and I've just I've taken on slightly with some other thinking. So I've started to work on something Michael Bungie Stanley of the Coaching Habit raised, which is there's practices that we can adopt from other people. And almost like a smorgasbord, if you know this, you know the Scandinavian eating piece. You know Tim Ferriss did it brilliantly in Tools of Titans, the book. He said this book won't every chapter won't be for everybody, but I'm sure there'll be you know tidbits or morsels that you can pick out of the book as you go through it. And it's the same thing for us as we've got all these practices that people are adopting. You know whether it's habit trackers that I use, or whether it's Headspace meditation, or whether it's positive intelligence I've adopted this year, or fasting. We all have these practices that we can experiment with. And once we experiment, say 80% of them fail, but 20% would feed our systems. And then we become habitual with those. And once they become habitual, they become part of your life. It's what Dan Carter was talking about. The, the discipline of writing down what he was going to do in a practice session with the number of kicks he was taking. It's the same for me now in my life. And therefore, I'm feeding my systems. People say, it sounds like hard work, but once it's habit, it's not. It's like you know, getting out of bed. It's turning on a tap. It becomes habit, and therefore it becomes natural to, to fuel it. That was the biggest thing in my life that turned everything around and said, well, I've been doing it the wrong way for so long. This is the new way. Yeah. There is so many things you hit on that we can dive into there. One of the things I do want to talk about and not get away from was when you were 29, 30 years old, you had had the breakdown on the golf course. Can you take us through what led to it? And then you, you had the conversation with the doctor. You talked about energy, but th there was likely more because I think that was a bit of a, a life evolution for you in that moment. Can you take us through what came out of it, Colin? Yeah, I, I go back to when I was a child. I mean, I, as a child, I was off talking to people. I was engaging with people. I had two or three groups of friends 
who I got on well with separately. And I wanted to, I had, was running experiments with different groups of friends to see if I bring them together and whether they would get on with each other. And, and therefore I, I was full of energy and full of, you know, turning things around. I, my bedroom would change around probably once every two weeks. So I was constantly looking at things in different ways. And then it started to get to that career point where choices were to be made. And that's when, in theory, your parents say, well, you need to grow up now. You need to learn how to be a grown up. Um, and that included the sort of choices in career. Now, I don't hold that against my parents or the people who were advising me at the time. But I, I look back and it was, it was almost do what I've done. And therefore, my father was a, a pediatric cardiologist. He invented ultrasound. So he invented ultrasound for the use of babies' hearts. So he was instrumental in saving, you know, thousands of babies' lives in diagnosis of, of heart defects. And my grandfather had been a professor of theology, and therefore he had ministered to people who then went on to help with the Martin Luther King's march to, to Washington. All of these people that he had influenced and uh, the, the, the churches that he'd influenced in his life. And therefore, I was firstly known in those days when I was traveling in the U.S. as Professor A. Amanta's grandson. And then I was known as, well, do you want to be what your dad was, was a doctor? Um, so I chose careers that almost were given as advice to me and the wrong choices. So for up to the age of 30, I was trying to be somebody I was not during the day. And that's uh, another concept I hold now is rather than work-life balance, I, had a, I now hold a life balance. In those days, it was I'm going to work for Procter & Gamble. I'm going to do a job I hate. But in the evening, I'm going to go work in a pub and I'm going to find social. I'm going to enjoy myself by chatting to people. I'm going to talk to people. I'm going to then go at the weekends and drive hundreds of miles to go and watch football matches or soccer matches and, and go visit friends. So I was seeking out my energy from others, not in my core work, but outside of work. So I burnt my systems. I burnt all my systems. And when I look back to golf, even then, I was driven. I was a driven achiever, as Jamie Smart, who wrote the book Clarity, would talk about, who's a good friend and a coach of mine. He used to say, there's people who are driven achievers who are not sure why they're doing it. They're just walking through walls that they're creating themselves. So I got to the point where I was sat with a doctor and going, yeah, I'm not sure I'm very clear about my purpose. I don't know what to do here. And, and even on the golf course, I mean, I was, I was playing well. When I collapsed on the 18th hole, I was, you know, just about to win. I was, but my whole system's just clamped down and I didn't know how to get out of it. And I, I think, you know, when you look at mental health issues now, there's so many people are in that place where they don't know how to cope. There's a gentleman called Gary Speed, who's who unfortunately took, took his life. He's a Welsh footballer, soccer player and a manager. And his the 10th anniversary of his death this week. And there's this clip of him being on the television that day and talking to people and caring for people. But that night he took his life and you don't know why. So I was lucky that I had that doctor who sat me down and said, firstly, your energy systems need to be looked at. But he also, he told the story of when he'd been in a car crash and he almost died and his life flashed in front of his eyes. And he used that. He said, you've had the opportunity, a gift to change your life. What do you want to do with it? And that was the start of my journey. So yes, there was something about purpose. It wasn't crystallizes purpose, Clint, at the time, by the doctor, but there was something in there. And I changed to, to a career, now doing what I do, leadership, coaching, that I love. And so I was lucky I had that, that breakdown in some ways. It's a weird thing to say, but that's, that's what taught me. Yeah. And how did you make that shift, Colin? How did you... And it was one of the questions I had, because we'll, we'll end up talking about purpose. We'll end up talking about presence. When it comes to purpose, 
how did you find your purpose? How do I, how do the readers, how do your coaching clients find their purpose? So Tom Peters said it recently, because there's a lot of work on purpose. And Simon Sinek had a great TED talk, which changed a lot of views. But a lot of things that are put out there, people then, they say, well, that's not exactly how you find your purpose. Tom Peters said it beautifully. He says, most of us stumble towards our purpose and find it by accident. Now, I like to be purposeful in, in my search for purpose by saying it's about experimentation. So I'm a great believer when I'm coaching people, which is it's not a case of a sitting in a, you know, 90 minutes in a coaching session. And at the end of it, you'll have this one idea that is going to be your purpose. The, the whole principle about experimentation and design thinking is at the heart of this is observing your life, uh, getting people to observe your life, telling them your story and them doing the coaching for you. And Jamie Smart did a lot of this for me. At the beginning of a three-day coaching session, he, um, he asked me on, my, on a flip chart to write down everything that I wanted to sort in my life. I had three flip chart pages full of stuff to sort, yeah. And at the end of the three days, he came back and he said, so let's go back to the flip chart. Any of this relevant? And I said, no. It's because the heart of everything that we think about is, is inside of us, yeah. And everybody else is, or people are in situations that pass. So our purpose is inside of us. We've just got to work on little experiments that test it out. So I set off in a series of experiments. I went and worked uh, in the Oxford Group, uh, a great consulting firm. I always remember I did my first consulting coaching gig. And the person who is uh, who was in that room as the client is still a good friend. And she hates me for it because I just got up there and stood and delivered a coaching session. I'd never done a coach. I'd never been a coach, ran it. But I just went, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to experiment. And so therefore, I started that experiment. And even now, she's now a coach. We still laugh about the time that I did that session. But there's something in that. By stepping out on the hero's journey into the world, having a go at something, expecting failure, which is part of the book, expecting to be more wrong, probably 80% of the time. But as long as you create the systems around yourself to be resilient when you fail, then those experiments can work it out. So I've had many purposes. And I've landed on my final one now. But as I say in the book, I started with a few rubbish ones, as I would describe them, worked them out, took them, sailed them out of the harbor, tested with clients and, and friends I knew. And I ended up with uh, the one I have now. So, And how would you describe your purpose right now, Colin? So my purpose is to create playgrounds to disrupt the way people are led. That fundamentally is it. And it's so everything I'm doing now, whether it's the leadership business I have, we're, we're testing VR, we've got a, a great simulation around virtual reality, we're t you have the use of actors, so we're doing that, so we've got the actors, so almost a whose line is it anyway, comedic way of getting conversations to be explored with actors, we're doing that. So that's a playground over there. In the thought leadership in the book, a lot of people are saying, so how do I create playgrounds in my life? So I'm starting to work on how we, we can work with people. Everybody's playground is going to be different. And then the 500 is a playground because nobody fundamentally has ever done what we're trying to do now. But we're going to use a series of playgrounds to disrupt the way people are led, disrupt equity for choices and career choices. So, so that's my purpose. But I can also live it at home. I've got two daughters. My, my, my role is to create playgrounds for them to go off to university for life, for experiences, and they are both very, very different. So that's what I do at home as well. Yeah. And how old are they now? So 17, 
as the eldest, and she's in her final year before she goes off to university, very excited, wants to go do business in French. And the 16-year-old is in her first year of senior, so the last two years of school, and uh, she's music, so she's singing guitar, and she's out there on stage. Um, and But I think she's going to be a politician. That's all I'm going to say. She's got a good argument in her. She's got a strong opinion. And I wonder where she gets that from, but she um, she's, she's incredible. So both of them are, are in good places, yeah. Excellent. So let's take it back then and let's get right into your book, Be More Wrong, How Failure Makes You an Outstanding Leader. When you wrote this, what was your motivation and who was your target demographic for reading the book? It's, um, I can say it was iteration, Clint. So I sat with a good friend, Michael Bungay-Stania in a conference that we go to every year. And he was just finishing the coaching habit. And we were talking about writing books. And the reason for writing the book initially was was a business card. So I wanted a business card to be able to explain to people what we as a business were doing. And therefore, I wanted to capture my stories from clients, our client stories. And we were also working with a great man who uh, runs a business called Story Brand, Donald Miller. And he had this concept about make the, the, the person you're doing the work for the hero of the story. So he used the hero's journey, used the guide. So that conversation with Michael, the work and story brand, the business card, I was trying to do it. So how could I tell stories that would resonate to people about client friends? Some of them who are not here, I need Drew Cameron is one of the people who's no longer with us, but was brilliant. Sarah Garten is in the book, who's still with us and thriving, you know, being promoted as we speak. And then you've got Maureen Finn, who still work with and we create Playground. But it's telling their stories so other people can learn from them. So that's what I decided to do with the book. But it took me four years to write, many iterations. And uh, I'll put a shout out to one of my colleagues, Milda Zinkus, who read the first iteration. And I asked her for my own, her honest feedback, and she wrote back to me, I don't know what to say. <laughs> and I took that with the spirit of it was given, which was, this is, this is rubbish, Colin. You need to rewrite it. So I rewrote it probably about 50 iterations. And eventually, despite the title being Be More Wrong and Get Things Out Early Into the Universe, I finally was happy enough to put the book out into the world. And uh, yeah, it's getting good, good feedback, which is great. Excellent. And so my first question when I dive into the books, because people often ask me, why do you like interviewing authors? And one of the main reasons is I like to read. So it's easy to come up with questions if I'm reading the book. But this is the first time that one of my early questions on the book comes right out of the dedication, because you had a powerful quote, which was, knowledge speaks, wisdom listens. And I couldn't help but underline that and wonder what it means to you and how it made it right into the dedication. So for me, Jimi Hendrix is not, I love rock music, but Jimi Hendrix was never really one of my top people to listen to. But he, this quote came to me and it, the reason it spoke to me was a couple of things. One is that I, I have a strong belief in curiosity as being a core leadership skill and being curious and, and going out and squirreling, particularly as I was talking to somebody today, particularly when times are tough you know, with COVID and the pandemic and everything else to, to, to set foot out of the door, most of us need a purpose. And therefore, we need some form of curiosity. We need to be curious. In fact, I think it's Amazon Web Services who have their number one value as natural curiosity for recruiting people. And I'm a strong believer in that. 
But the piece for me is that if I go back to the other part of the dedication with uh, Randy Taylor, Randy Taylor brought the two, the Presbyterian churches of the north of the U.S. and the south of the U.S. together, and he also helped with the, the march uh, Martin Luther King to Washington. But he had this ability to sit on his rocking chair in Montreat, North Carolina, and he would invite in people who disagreed with him, and he would invite in people who agreed with him, and he would invite, invite in all these different views and thoughts. And he, was, he held a curiosity piece with them about asking them questions. And that ability to listen without judgment and to really be deep in the curiosity allowed him to, to bring together factions that you know, we never thought would have been brought together in those days. And that's where the, you know, the wisdom part of it is. I don't know. I mean, even I'll give you a small example, Clint, recently. British humor is all based on sarcasm. And I always thought we were, you know, Tate Monty Python, always thought we were the funniest nation in the world. Until recently, when I realized the impact of sarcasm on others, the lexicon of it is ripping flesh, I believe. I realized that sarcasm has this ability to cause other people pain. And even, hold my hand up, I realized I was doing it with my youngest daughter at the time. And to realize that and be curious about, firstly, why I needed to use it. Secondly, the impact it had on others, including my daughter, um, which was massive. And even my eldest daughter called me on it at one point. And I didn't really fully realize at the time the extent of that. So that curiosity and that wisdom has allowed me, in theory, to be a better father and a better leader. So that whole quote for everything in life is, if I go out the door with a curiosity mindset to seek wisdom, to not have one or two decisions or choices to make out decisions, but as one of our advisory board, Andrew Webster says, if a decision is binary, it's not a good decision. How many multiple choices do I have in life? Curiosity and wisdom fuels that. So that's the purpose of it. Yeah. Yeah. At work, one of the things I've learned and ties to that is always seeking to create optionality. The more optionality we can have in life, in our it's weird. We build homes, right? So you might think, well, what are your options? You're building homes. But everything we look at is, hey, which choice when you make it will give you more optionality? More optionality in your financing, how you sell the product, how you market it. Just keep opening doors because the more options we have, the better off we're going to be. Oh, agreed. No, I'm strong. In all aspects, you like. I always remember having a company car. I think I wrote about it in the book, but you know, my old boss and I wanted the company car that was three up on the list. And I thought I'd never get it, but I thought I'd ask. And he said, so what am I getting it for it? And I was, okay. I said, well, I'll give you 100,000 more sales at the end of the year. He said, got it. You got a deal. So you know, he said, profit is freedom. We Once you have more profit, you have more freedom. You have more choice. So how do you, and it's again, it's the system. System of profit allows choice. And even with a new business, we've we deliberately set it off on a commercial footing so we can it can self-fund itself. So we have more choices about what we do. Conscious, deliberate. Yeah. The more money you make for the person you're working for, the more they are happy to let you do other things. It makes absolute sense. So let's get back to your idea of playgrounds. So what you have said, if the listener didn't catch it was that you want to create workplaces that make colleagues more resilient and to create a playground environment to allow people to play, learn, 
push boundaries, stretch themselves, love their work, and be happy. So can you tell us what that looks like? Because I'm hearing that and it sounds fantastical, but what does it actually, what does it mean, Colin? What is it? It's a fascinating because when we first started the work in this, we started to think about laboratories. And therefore, we had a laboratory as a, a framework for it. So how do we bring this and this and this and this together and see what we get out of it? And I started to go back for me. And again, it's the be more wrong philosophy. I started to go back to when was I happiest? And particularly at school, the happiest was not in the classroom, but it was out the playground when we'd be given freedom and you had the smile on your face and somebody gave you the ball and you were going off to play sport or or you were chatting with your friends about the latest Rush concert, you know, talking about Canadians. My favorite band is Rush. And I remember the, the day we spent about an hour and a half debriefing the All the World's a Stage tour that had just happened. Two friends had been lucky enough to do it. and But the playground was, at that point, was, you know, where am I going to be happiest? Where am I going to learn more? And in those days, I had listened to Rush at that point, and they started talking. So the playground was, let's explore some new music. And therefore, I started to listen to Rush and started to think, okay, there's, an, there's a band I love. So on the sports field, I had to play and I took the, in soccer, took a particular role. I had to find my place, but I had to go play to explore where was the, the best place to play. And in some ways, when I was in the playground to start with, Clint, going back to it, and a lot of people have a negative reaction to playgrounds because that's where bullying happens, other pieces. And there was a certain element to that when I was first in the playground and they used to, you know, two people would pick their teams to play at the break. I was probably second to last or last to be picked because I wasn't that good with my feet in soccer. But I found my role as goalkeeper. And I found a bit like my daughter's done now, the, the youngest daughter, she's found a role as goalkeeper. So we have to either have a playground created for us that we can go off and explore, or we have to create our own playgrounds, take that foot, step foot forward into it, test it, and have a go at it. So I found my goalkeeper role. I found my music. But even now, a playground to, to, to fuel systems, I've got to find something else. So even on the music now, every morning, 10 minutes each morning, while I'm doing Pilates, I will plug in a bit of new music. So I will listen to a new band, new artist, somebody I haven't heard of, or I'll go back to somebody like a Jimi Hendrix I haven't listened to in some of the back catalogs. So all the time I'm creating a playground and I've discovered so many new bands and music. So there's a music playground, there's a sporting playground. And if you think about the work and the career bit, how often do I coach people and say, you want to be an MD? You want to be promoted to be managing director? How often am I saying, do you really know what it looks like? How could you create, not the language of playground, but the same concept, how could you create some small experiments to go off and test what it's like to be an MD? Because most of them, when they get there, <laughs> turn around and go, I don't know why I wanted this. It's harder work. It's not that much more pay. It's more stress. So the playground concept is fundamentally, what is, what is my passion? What am I trying to, to do? How am I seeking opportunities to test myself and stretch myself? But in ways that don't cause you pain, that have a soft landing. So music, very simple, soft landing. But for the career, it's working out how you might experiment to go see what an MD looks like or being a tech person rather than, a, uh, say, an HR person. You go and explore and experiment and you can happily take a step back and go, I'm just going to go back here because that was nice, but it doesn't fit with me. But we've got to make those choices. And, and that's an important one, Colin. And I was diving into that the other day and, and wrote something on it because a lot of people spend years and years chasing their dream only to realize 
it's not their dream. So how do you suggest they realize sooner whether something is their dream or it isn't? Yeah, and I think there's no one right answer for everybody. I once had a a lady who was senior in the law side or the, the legal side in a big consulting firm. And she also had a passion for interior design and fashion. And my coaching with her was, should I go and do the passion, uh, as in the, the fashion or the interior design, or should I be a, a lawyer? And, and my guide to her was, so what feels right? And she said, well, actually, both feel right. And so, okay, so let's explore it. So what she did was she explored the fashion, she explored the interior design. But there's a piece in here for me that is is quite interesting. Sometimes what we find passionate because it's like going on holiday. So I would love to live in Vancouver, for example. But somebody said to me, try six months in Vancouver, you know, proper six months, not just holiday, but go and live there, go live in a place. And so therefore my advice to her was, why don't you go try something, set up a side business in the background, do that. So she did. And what she realized is it was very therapeutic for her. She loved it. She had a passion, but actually the main breadwinner and her other passion legal was providing with more stability. So she does both now. And actually what she does is she's brought the fashion and everything to the way she dresses when she walks into the office. She's changed her style. So she's not the boring lawyer, legal side. She dresses flamboyantly. Um, So she's found a way of combining it. So I'm a big believer in testing it out. Go play. You know, rather what we call in the UK, busman's holiday. You know, there's a piece about going out and trying something different, um, experimenting and seeing whether you actually like it or not. You know, for example, for a while, and uh, golf was mentioned earlier on this podcast, I thought I wanted to be a professional golfer. But the more I realized that it's hard work and the talent and also the mental side was just not me. I wasn't patient enough. I realized I could keep it as a separate piece that fuels me outside work and find my other passion in work to be better. Yeah. So how low did you get the handicap? Were you negative? Were you scratch? No, I was, my closest was about eight. I could probably play off eight on my best day, um, which for in those days for me was fantastic. But I only played once or twice a week and I realized I needed to do it more. And so I ended the, the my career, golfing career, because I was angry. <laughs> I was getting angry about the fact that I wasn't performing as well as I thought I should be. But I wasn't willing to put the effort in. So that's big, been a big lesson for me is, is if you're going to do something, find the space and the time to do it and do it properly. Yeah. And I absolutely identify with what you're saying. I didn't take up golf until later in life and loved it and quit when my son was born because I realized when I like something or love it, I'm not okay being okay at it. And to be as good as I would have wanted to be. I would have had to golf Saturday morning, Sunday morning, driving range two or three nights a week, looked at the family and said, that's never going to happen. So maybe I'll take this up again when I retire. And it's gone. And there's been a few things like that because, there, you know, if you go back to what you talked about earlier, when you have a personality that you're just wired to having to exceed at whatever you do, when I am off scratch, I will be happy. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, you're, and none of that ever makes you happy. It's just an innate desire to be good at whatever you're doing, which is, you know, we can talk about theories on why you develop that. But I think I've solved mine and we'll see someday if that's true. And so habits and systems, you've talked about that a few times already. 
And it seems to be the backbone that you've built the, and would you call it the PI2 model or the PI squared model? Yeah, PI2 model. Yeah, PI2 model. Yeah. PI2. The PI2 model. So can you share with our listeners at a high level, what is the PI2 model? And then we'll start to dive into it and work our way through it and through the materials in the book, Colin. Yeah, no. So at the heart of the model is uh, purpose, identity, and the presence concept. So we've simplified that down. So if you think about three C's of anybody, so if you think about people who have been impactful on you, they have three C's. They have a confidence about them. And that confidence is physicality, vocality, mindsets. That you know, I always tell the story about being on an airplane. And as we got off the airplane, there's about 10 of us. And there's a gentleman who strode off the airplane. And we all followed him because he looked like he knew where he was going. He was confident. And it was only when he turned into the restroom that we realized we didn't need to go. And we followed the wrong person off the plane. But that, that confidence piece is classically the physicality, the vocality, the speaking. But if you have only that in your impact, then it can sometimes be either a salesperson or arrogant in there. So the second C is conviction what we call conviction, which is that you have a value set, a purpose, and an identity that is towards something. And, you know, all the work around purpose and identity is, it's great to have something you believe in, but it's better to have something that works towards, involves other people in it. So so my conviction is about a purpose towards creating playgrounds that disrupt the way people are led. Why? Because I want the life and choices to be better for them. So that conviction If you hold the confidence and then you have the conviction, then people are seeing a consistent messaging, a consistent direction, a consistent value set that people are deploying. And then if you have those two, then if you come to the last bit, the connection piece, and I thank one of my uh, New Zealand uh, colleagues who gave me this analogy, but he said, you know, diversity, inclusion, but also the agility we have in relationships is the ability not only to dance with the music we bring, but be able to dance with the music other people bring. And we tend to work with our music. And I loved his analogy, which is, and this is down to Maori background, how can I work out what music they bring? How can I learn to dance to it and therefore have true connection with the person who's bringing me that music? Now, some people don't follow that metaphor, but the principle is rather than what can I get out of this situation? How can I flip it around and say, what can I do for this person to make them feel that I have connected with him in a positive and engaging way? So those three C's are how we would measure impact of a leader in, in what they do. I'll pause and just see if that makes sense. Yes. So we're trying to work on our confidence, our conviction, our connection, and we're doing that through developing habits and systems And the way I took it was the three enablers that drive the confidence, conviction, and connection are our purpose, our presence. Yep. And identity. And our identity. Yeah. And so those are the three areas I thought we'd spend a decent amount of time on if that works. And so on purpose, we already talked about finding it. And purpose is why we do what we do and why people should follow us, then the second question is how we do things is built around the choice of how we want to be known or what we not want to be known for. Can you expand on that for us and what that looks like? So that's getting into what I would call the identity. And it's interesting because uh, you know, Dan Pontefract, another author, he's, he 
say Simon Sinek's version of the the golden circles is not the right way, but he talks a lot about what we do and how we do it is important about finding your purpose. So you can flip it round. Um, but if I go to the how, for me, it's about the identity. So if I choose a simple analogy, let's go, I either play golf or I'm a golfer. And this is what James Clear in Atomic Habits does beautifully. He says, there's a difference. If I'm playing golf, then I can turn up with a set of clubs at a golf course and I can hack my way around and I can be okay with that. If I'm a golfer, there's some discipline systems that I need to have in place. I need to practice my game. I need to work on my fitness even more now. You know, the days of being an unfit golfer just aren't there. There's a lot of people who work out in the gym before they go on Tiger Woods. They practice different shots. They go into the rough deliberately. So being a golfer is is a different mindset. And therefore, just give you a personal example, I've chosen not just to be a father, but I've chosen to be a father of daughters is one of my identities. And therefore, my whole being is about shaping a future for them where women have better career opportunities and opportunities to develop. Uh, and again, that's led me to the 500 and other things in there, but that's my identity. So when somebody says, well, my, my purpose is to be a father, and I say, so what sort of father do you want to be? You know, how do you want to turn up? You want to be the one who's taking all their children off to, to sports. I've got a good friend who's taking their, his two girls dirt biking. He takes them to the toughest snow slopes you know, with a sledge and says, right, we're going down the toughest. We're going to find the next highest slope to go down. Or do you want to be somebody who cares? And I've got another very good friend, uh, Kev Wirt, who I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying, but he is one of the nicest people in the world. And he, he lives his life with care and compassion. And so therefore his whole being is how do nice people be successful in the in this world, and and I'm a strong believer that nice people will be successful. It's the givers and takers principle from Adam and Grant. It's Adam Grant. So it's it's this identity. You choose something. You nail your colours to the mast as an identity, and then you live it. But you can't choose twenty, thirty things, or people get confused. So what are the three, three or four things that you choose identities to work with? Yeah. And so that was an interesting thing that you said in the book. Was you said choose three identities. And I believe you said you had two that were pretty sticky and one where you were kind of weaving in, weaving in and out, experimenting, if you will, like you talked about earlier. Can you explain to people what you mean by that? So how big or how small are you looking at that identity piece? Am I, as an example, saying my identities are, I'm a father of sons, and I'm a CFO, and I'm a podcast host. Are those my three identities? Or am I going even even tighter where I'm saying I am a confident speaker, or we'll, we'll dive in deep into intense curiosity, which was one of yours. So what I love about this podcast and listening to the episodes before, and I'm getting it now, is there's a depth to your podcast. So there's a there's a curiosity, there's a questioning, there's a there's a method to it. And even the physicality of how you're looking from one list to the other that you've got and you're working towards is there's a purposeful way you're dissecting the conversation in a curious way to get at the root of what you're doing. So how do you crystallize that? So when somebody says, Oh, he's a podcaster, so what type of podcaster is he? Because there's other people who you know, I, I went on one in the US and this really calm person said, okay, so we're going to go live in a second. And they said, ah, oh, welcome to the podcast. And today we've got Colin Hunter from 
the UK and yeah. And, and I was, whoa, I was, you know, heads back, <laughs> looking the shock. And what he wanted was humor and fun. So he wanted me to banter. So we were bantering. Probably sarcasm was flying left, right and center, as we were talking about earlier on. So your choice of a podcaster, even your choice of CFO, because I do a lot of work with CFOs. And, you know, when I, I look at that, there's the, there's the negative impact of a bean counter, but there's controller CFO. There's entrepreneurial CFOs. There's innovation-based CFOs who look at how you run a business in a design thing, you know, a lean startup way or a startup CFO. The CFOs who hate the term CFO because they're more of a commercial officer for the business. So your identity, even at a CFO level, could go deeper yeah, to do that. And there's people who consciously say, look, CEO is number one. I'm always going to be a number two. That's the way. I work as a number two in the business because that's my strength. I'm not a good, sh- not a good number one. There's an identity. So my, my COO would say, she'd say, say that accurately to me. She says, I'm a number two. I work well with other people's messes. She's the queen of everything. Yep. So she's got my messes to tidy up behind her. Yeah. After I've uh, left them. So, uh, yeah. So it's those types of things at that level, you would take it. But then there can be a simple test. So I've, um, I've been consciously working on something around positive intelligence on my identity. And one of the things that I've realized is one of my negative voices is, is the pleaser. I want to please people. Yeah. And so therefore. Tell us more. Okay. So it's, it's a judge in me. So I judge myself harshly. Imposter syndrome is a massive part of me. So I will be the one that beats me up, beats myself up about this podcast at the end of it. And I'll think, so how could I have done it differently? And then I'll sometimes get into the judging of others. Well, it was the podcast host. They didn't do, but that's less of mine. But my third judge in there is my judge of circumstances. Well, if I've done my 20th podcast, I'll be brilliant when I get there. Or if I have, you know, somebody to help me write the script, I will be better. So there's judges in there. And then there's the other voices that come in here, which are my pleaser. So therefore, sometimes on a podcast, I've let myself down, for example, because I've gone too much to what the podcast host wants to go. And I've gone off in a direction which I don't feel is right and uh, to please. So I'm trying to work on something that um, is, is about collaboration. So collaborative mindset is my new working identity at the moment. And actually, I'm basing it on compassion. So I'm using the positive intelligence to say, I'm going to work with empathy with the other person. I'm going to think about them with an empathic mindset. I'm going to collaborate with them. And therefore, what can I do for you today? Three things I can do for you collaboratively that will make this podcast better for you. There's my new identity. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And what is, Colin, what is positive intelligence? Because I, the first time you said it, I put a box around it. I put a star. I said, what is this? And I was going to look at it later, but you brought it back. And so it sounds like something that's very important to you that we should touch. Well, I, I think there's two things to it. I discovered it because one of our actors, actresses, had discovered it. And she said, you, you've got to, got to get some of this, Colin. You know, it's that, that bit about try this. And so we decided we would do some pilots for the team. And the, the principles I've just given you are from Positive Intelligence, the three judges, and the saboteurs that are in the background. The saboteurs, you can do your free saboteur assessments. Shirzad is the, uh, the author of the book. I've got it back here. But, but again, it's called Positive Intelligence. You do the uh, work in it. 
But it was another experiment. So I said, look, okay, so let's get some of our team to have a go at this and test it. And I decided I was going to be one of the five that went through it. And it's interesting because it's not for everybody. One of the people who joined it didn't get as much, but the two of us who went into it, who got so much out of it. One of my colleagues, massive issues going into it around his own belief, his own mindset. And everything in there was about hypervigilant, worried about what he'd said, worried about what other people thought of him and worried about what might happen and therefore did a lot of analyzing. And he wouldn't mind me saying, he's come out the other side and I've nicknamed him Yoda now because he is just, he's in a different place. He's coaching me. So he's sitting there going on a Sunday afternoon, he's ringing me and going, so how are you? You know, and we're having some of the most meaningful coaching conversations. But all he's done is he's created a new neural pathway. So where his anxiety was, would kick in, his in, saboteurs were kicking in, his judges were kicking in. All he's doing is he's correcting it through breath, meditation, and other pieces. He's creating another neural pathway, which takes him down a, let me explore that. Yeah. Let me have empathy for you. Let have have empathy for myself um, to work on that. So that's the basis of positive intelligence. How do we create new neural pathways? And there's all the scientific evidence to say, you can do this to deal with situations in a better way. Now, I'll give you one last example on this because I do a conflict pack nearly every day. And it's not that I have major conflicts every day in my life, but I find it a useful way of doing the conflict pack. Then I do 20 minutes of headspace meditation. By the time I've worked out and I've shown empathy for the other person in the issue or the argument or the challenge we've got, by the time I've done that, I've worked out why I feel I'm so passionate about it, why I'm willing to, to raise the, the ante on it and why they are. And then I do my 20 minutes of what I call falling out my thinking. I normally have my best ideas in that 20 minutes after I've done the conflict pack. And I just come to that realization that it could be just something as simple as I haven't communicated well enough or as simple as I haven't been clear why I'm in conflict. And so that's what I'm working on every day. It's a new practice that's become a habit to that PQ reps as they're called every day, then headspace. And the combination of the two, very powerful. So Conflict Pack, they have, it's an app-based system. So you do the, the course and it's an hour a week for six weeks. And then we have a pod. Now, interestingly enough, the pod of four or five of us are still meeting every Monday, five o'clock for 30 minutes. And we still talk, even though the course is finished. But the app is something that on the app, there's a, there's a gym section. So it's a bit like going to the gym and you've got things like a pack that sort of says tactile. So you might do a 12 minute tactile, which is touch, you might have a breath pack. You know, you might have a movement pack. You know, it's that classic moment on the movement side. When was the last time we wandered around the garden and noticed stuff happening? When was the last time we sat on a mountain and gave ourselves time to look out and seen the beauty around us? So there's those packs. The conflict pack teaches us how to almost dial down the voice of the judges in our head, dial up the sage voices in our pack. And all he does is he gives you some mantras and some questions to work through. And then it allows you to, as I say, dampen the loudest voice at the dinner party down and allow other voices around that table to be more heard in that space. That's the work. And have you ever done any cognitive behavioral training or thought auditing? I haven't. I've been with people who have, but I've never done it. But it's it, what is beautiful about this positive, and I, it's not saying that the others are not, because I'm a big believer in all of those, is that it's, it's almost a combination. So when I'm doing some of the spaces on Headspace, 
I hear the similar mantras, similar thoughts. So there's a lot of the neuro, neuro leadership institute work. There's a lot of stuff coming in there. So it's this beautiful world we live in, isn't it, Clint, that it's all coming at us from different angles. And it's about how we package it together sometimes that is the interesting bit. Yeah. Well, the number one thing for a lot of our listeners who have trouble with the voices and with past guests, we've talked about this, the, the voices in our head almost are never positive. You know, if they were a roommate, we'd kick them out. And one of the things with CBT, and it may not even be CBT in its fullness, but the the number one book I've always recommended is Feeling Good, The New Mood Therapy. And I know you like to read, and I think Dr. Burns has a new book called Feeling Great. Great's probably better than good, but I haven't read it yet. I mean, it just really teaches you how to shut that voice off. And that was possibly the greatest change I ever had in my life was to live without a voice telling me I was wrong or this person did that because of this or, you know, making up stories that that I was telling myself. And so that book was the first time I was ever able to say, oh, wait, none of that's real. Let's let's actually focus on what's real in life. It is amazing, isn't it? It's um, Jamie Smart, who does a lot of work about falling out of your own thinking, but he describes it as and it's a podcast coming out, one of my podcasts coming out soon. He's on there and he, he just kind of, it's funny because he used the analogy when he was coaching me. He said, as a child, we have a self-correcting system. So we can be laughing at one moment, crying the next moment with, and we can be fighting with a friend and then the next moment laughing with a friend. So we have a self-correcting system. And he, in that coaching session with me, used the analogy as we grow through life, if you can imagine the Colorado River cutting its way through the canyons, so it's with strength. It gets gradually frozen by thoughts, by voices, and actually gets to the point where there's only a small trickle of water, you know, flowing at the bottom of the ice. And and his whole piece, which is how do you fall out your thinking, is partly about the voices, but it's partly about that moment where is that is that a feeling or is that a thought? Is it a and just working for that? How do we unfreeze our thinking? So CBT is one way of doing it positive intelligence, I find headspace has been massive for me, just quietening my voices in my head. But I've also realized I can't shut them up completely. They're always going to be there. No, it's actually impossible. And, you know, a lot of people think meditation is the absence of thought. All meditation is, is learning to not grasp on or go with the thought. So thoughts come And the analogy that a lot of meditation teachers like to use is that it's like a and let's go back to your river example. They'll say a stream, but you could say a river. And imagine the leaf is just your thoughts are going to keep coming into your consciousness. Just allow them to be a leaf on the river and float away. Don't pick the leaf up and start looking at it and flipping it over and you know remarking on the color or the shape or the texture of the leaf. Just let it go. And, and so you'll always have thoughts. It's what you do with them. And it is amazing because when you look back at when I was 30 and you look back where I am now, but you also look back at just the, uh, the discussions. Um, Adam Grant posted something on LinkedIn the other day about imposter syndrome. And he put a point of view and, and a lot of psychologists and other, everybody piled on to say, well, actually, imposter syndrome is just sorting out the child. And then somebody piled on and said, well, actually, it's not just the child, it's other and you suddenly realize how complex a lot of this work is for people to understand and think. And therefore, the, the whole point of going back to the practices, new practices, habits, and therefore systems is, if I do my little bit of work each day 
to make myself slightly better in terms of how I'm feeding that system, then gradually things will change. Yeah. And for the positive, but, but as you say, we will always have those voices in our head kicking in. And sometimes at the most awkward time, I've found one is alcohol for me. I've realized that some of my major problems is when I've had too much to drink and I have my biggest arguments because suddenly out come those voices and those saboteurs. And therefore, I'm being very careful about what I do and how I, I haven't given up alcohol, but it's one of the thoughts I've had in my mind about it. Yeah. The, and if you are the type of person, like you mentioned with your golf, who's a bit all or nothing, then one of the things, you know, and, and on that topic is I know it's very hard for me to be, I'll just have two drinks with my friends on a Tuesday, or I'll just drink on a weekend. You know, all of a sudden it's Wednesday night and it's like, well, why not have a glass of wine just to unwind? You've deserved it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it's it's really just thinking about how all that plays in, not to everyone's different, but it all does tie into our personality and saying, how does that fit with my personality? The and So that's part of the identity. And one of the things I found interesting was you said you're on your, your fifth iteration of your identity or brand. And almost like you can, like the, like Harry Potter and he's got his invisibility cloak and he can just throw that on. He's invisible or he's not and he just changes it. And one of the things you did for a year was you said, I'm going to add intensely curious into my brand. And you made it seem like to me, and, and this is something I've tried in my life, is I look at someone and I say, what is it about that person? And I think you were saying this earlier too. What is it about that person that I admire or respect? And how can I take that behavior they have and make it part of me? And so you set out to do that with Intensely Curious. What did that look like for a year? And, and how did you make it part of your brand and identity? I think at the time I did it on behavior. Now I would do it on practices. Yeah. So I, so that's a big difference uh, for me. And I, we've always seen ourselves as a behavioral business, but actually I've started to work on what are the practices. It's interesting because there's some work around the, the neurodiversity piece, which says that, for example, emotional intelligence is, it's very difficult for certain people who potentially are on the spectrum to see what emotional intelligence is or understand it, but they can understand patterns of practices or habits that get a different outcome in front of them. And I'm, I think I'm one of those people. And I, I suddenly realized that rather than going, so I'm going to be naturally curious like Michael Bungie Stanier is, and I'm going to go off and be Michael Bungie Stanier. I started to pick up on some of his habits that I was hearing from his book, The Coaching Habit. And one of those habits was, uh, what's on your mind at the beginning of a coaching session? Now, it sounds very simple and he makes it very simple. And then somebody says, so rather than going, so we're having a coaching session, I'm going to sit at a 90 degree angle, I'm going to take notes, and we've got 45 minutes to work it through. What do you want to talk about today? It's rather than doing that, say, what's on your mind? Very laid back. But his second question, which he calls his most powerful coaching question is, and what else? <laughs> the all question. It's the best question in the history of questions. Exactly. And it, therefore you go curiosity and it's, I always remember that uh, I had a good f family or adopted family friend who worked for Time magazine. And he always said, who's the most impactful person you'd ever met? And it was Clinton. 
So Bill Clinton. And he said, there was something about Bill Clinton. I saw it live on a, a talk with Bill Clinton. He just had this ability to be curious about the individual. So Bonya, as they say in uh, South Africa. And it's, a, it's this Zulu language about, I see you. Yeah. And there's a piece about that he was naturally curious and he made everybody feel, whoever they were that they met, the most important person by being curious about their thoughts. And there was a brilliant Fox News interview where Clinton was on. And there was, he was so curious and so impactful that at one point he touched the knee of the person who was interviewing him. And the person almost went in shock because he'd, he'd pulled him in with curiosity. So that's what I started to learn was the power of questions and what else, but also by using people's language back to them. And I found that even in a coaching term. So when somebody's saying, well, I'm struggling, struggling, tell me more. Just rather than putting it into my own language, I started to be curious about their language and struggling. And Jamie Smart gave it to me as well. He gave me something to test on my daughter. And I just did it as a father. And it was that piece where the next time she said something, I said, so you, the word she used, and I, I would ask us, what do you mean by that? You've said this, what do you mean? And that curiosity, that layer of digging underneath and getting the, at the unsaid came to be a breakthrough for me with my daughter around something she was, and actually she was just adopting my wife and I's stress most of the time. And it was only when I'd, I'd taken that curiosity, used her words to play back to her and asked her questions, did I get there? So that's what it, it looked like. And it, it got to the point where people in my coaching sessions would say, in a good way, they'd say, if you're going for a coaching session with Colin, bring tissues, bring Kleenex, whatever you, you know, and, and they would go, why do I need that? And this was male, female, didn't matter. And they'd say, why do you need that? Because he will be, he, it's intense. And what they meant was intense was that I asked questions and I commented on things that potentially other people wouldn't have picked up on. Um, and that was what I practiced in my intensely curious phase was just taking a risk. If you seem like you don't believe what you just said, simple example, yeah, you try to rewrite, I'm in the wrong job. Or I notice you've got your jacket buttoned up and you've every time, ever since I've known you, you've had your jacket buttoned up all the way. And after about half an hour, we found out that that person's father had been a big influence and always said, you need to dress up in a suit and keep your buttons tied and he couldn't lose it. Yeah. So that intense curiosity unearths things, but, but you've got to be ready to spend the time to do it. So you're almost combining in, in a, not, not full on therapy, if you will, but there's a bit of element of psychotherapy in there with your coaching where, or shadow work, if you will. It's shadow work. I think that's a better way of, because I would never, I'm always asking permission to, to go there. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. I'm always asking permission to go there, but there's pieces and it's worked for me. This is where Jamie went with me. He just, he has, he adopts this position. I know it's a podcast, so people not know what it is, but he adopts this position where he sits with his hands cupped to his chest and he sits there. And that's pretty much for three days, the position he had. But he is just, he's listening and he's happy with silence. And if you ever get the chance to listen to the podcast recorded, there's so many pauses that sound like the podcast has stopped or interrupted because he's correcting his language. And therefore, in his space, he puts a point of view across and then he tests it out with you. But he allows you to be the one who's, who's okay or not with that, that concept and to talk more about it. And that's what I've, I've learned it. So yeah, I think it's, it's a bit of shadow work. Um, but I would know when my place is to stop on that. Um, and there's certain people have just, you know, I've said, look, 
this is this is a place where I think that you need somebody else. Yeah. But a lot of people are quite happy to have tears of joy, frustration, happiness, whatever else it is in a coaching conversation. And I normally when we get there, there's a point where you just they always apologize. And I always go, seems like we've we've hit something here. So do you want to carry on with this? Yeah, do. Yeah, it's usually something. Let's dig into it. Let's figure out what it means and how that's impacting you. And, and so as leaders, how do we set up systems and practices to be our best selves? What are some of the tips or techniques that you have for people in setting up those systems? I would always work on systems is a big thing. So I would always work on the system. So we've got four systems that we work on. So for example, the first one is what we call you know, inspirational relationships or engaged connections is another way of putting it. And that's, as a leader, the simple philosophy is a, as a host. So how do I host relationships? Now, there's many different ways that you can fuel that system. So for example, having a vibrant network as practices is important to that. I always struggle with people who uh, they only do LinkedIn or networking when they need a job. Yep. They're just about made redundant or I'm out of work and hey, it would be great to or I'm starting a new business with. But so for me, there's a piece around those systems that practices are I've got relationships with a purpose. I work through them. I identify those people that I want in my network for not to create an echo chamber, but to to get different voices, diversity in my thinking, and, and also the people I recruit to be diverse in thinking as well. So that's part of it. And then how do I engage them? And there's a lot of work in there about psychological safety. So the different practices in psychological safety that are big MEMs and obviously has done a lot of work in that, but there's some great work on psychological safety now. I love the concept of the surgeon table, the surgeon not being the the primary seat of power now. I love the work that's been done in airline pilots, but it's all over the place now. It's it's the concept of how does a leader take a servant leadership role mm. and amplify the voices of the people around you. So that there's some simple examples of, for example, a leader being the last to comment on an idea in a room. Simple example in psychological safety that somebody proposes an idea and it's everybody reads it at the same time in the meeting for the first 10 minutes. And then the person who is least involved with the project gives their feedback first. The person who's most involved with the project gives their feedback last and they go around the room. But there's some practices that could become habits that would feed a system of psychological safety. So that's one system, if that's making sense. And I'll let you, yeah. Yes. And and I almost looked at those as systems, and I was referring to them in my mind as even as archetypes. And so, as a leader, I want to embody the host archetype. And and one of the things that you talked about a fair amount there was paying it forward. And and what does that mean as it relates to that system, Colin? And and how can I tie that into my leadership style? So I love the uh, Jacqueline Farrington, who's in the book and good friend. She gave me one. She said, to calm my nerves in speaking, and I get nervous speaking. She used to say, imagine that you're hosting a dinner party. So when you stand up in front of an audience, imagine you've got a glass of wine in your hand. And I, I still give that to people because that's a, it's a prop. Now, if you've got a glass of wine in your hand, great. But we're going back to that original conversation about the wine. And you know that would be drinking at 10 o'clock in the morning when you're hosting a conversation probably isn't the best thing uh, to do. But if you imagine that you are, then as a host, you're bringing in voices. You're bringing in voices. So you're making connections across the room to other people. You're bringing in thoughts. 
And the host is a servant leadership leadership archetype for me, because what you're doing as a leader is stepping back to engage the thoughts of others and amplifying their voices. So you bring that in. The pay it forward is an interesting principle, which is if I think about the opportunities, when I recruit somebody, I think, what are the what is this going to do? What are the three things this is going to do for the, this, this person who's coming into the organization? And what do I want to create? And I tend to think of pay it forward in recruitment as how can I create either a, a rocket launch for them in their career? So I'm very happy if they go off and be more successful. Kev Wood is a classic example. He came into our organization as an associate consultant, incredibly successful now in his own right. And people say, oh, you're not disappointed he's gone off and he's not working for you anymore. I said, no, I'm celebrating the fact that we actually had the privilege of him coming in and working for us at one point. So there's that. But I think the networking piece is the biggest, probably your listeners, the biggest thing that I struggled with and I've swapped around is when I think about networking, going to networking events, I used to think, what are the three things I want to get out of the, the conversation? Now I think, what are the three things I can do for people in the room? And that networking transference and the pay it forward from the, the, the movie has allowed me to, to enhance relationships. Now, it's interesting how often you get something coming back the other way, and it might not be in the first two years, it might be in 10 years. And in fact, there was um, one of my uh, old bosses who was, we had a difficult relationship. He actually ended up uh, being employed by us. Yeah. And it was that principle of in there, which is I started to think about the pay it forward philosophy, which was, he's the right person. I'm going to pay it forward. I'm going to accept the fact we had a difficult relationship. I'm going to bring that forward. And therefore, I, I networked with him. He came into the organization. Now, it didn't work out, but the philosophy behind it was, I'm going to give this guy a chance. Yep. So pay it forward is massive in there. And if I'm a big believer in it's a wonderful life, you know, no man is poor who has friends. Yep. So how do you bring connections closer on the pay it forward principle? Yeah. Okay, and, and the second system that you want to dive into, so the host is our first system. Yeah, so if you think about Frodo and Sam, Lord of the Rings, leaving the village, and they start to think about gathering their fellowship together, so you've got Aragorn, you've got Gimli, you've got Legolas, and the next piece that you need to have is an energy system, which is includes a story. So what's your purpose? What's your quest? So destroying the ring in Lord of the Rings, if nobody has gathered where I'm going with that story. Yeah, so Lord of the Rings, destroying the ring. Take Harry Potter and defeating uh, Voldemort to take your archetype. But the second system is having an inspiring story that other people can feel part of, they can feel energized by. And for me, the 500 is that for me at the moment. It's getting a lot of energy for me, and it's getting a lot of energy for other people coming in to do that. So that is the, that's the energizer. It is the energizer. Yeah. And there's two parts. So one's a story, a compelling story that you're working towards. But my favorite part, and you've gathered this because we've done a lot about headspace and other pieces, is what we call drive. But it's this inner drive. How do I maintain my own energy levels? And because of my breakdown, it's always been the biggest thing. So even now I'm wearing a whoop, which is measuring. Okay. So you're using the whoop. Okay. Yeah. So I'm measuring my sleep. I'm measuring my deep sleep. I've signed up for the new whoop that's coming out, to, but I'm measuring my breath. I'm playing with things like uh, nasal breathing. So when I'm sleeping, nasal breathing is better for sleep. It also cures snoring, I've found. Not from me, but from a friend who's tried it as well. 30 years of snoring, he's not snoring anymore. But I've found different practices that are allowing me to sleep better, to exercise, to feel better, mental strength, positive intelligence. 
So that energizer is made up of my own fuel cell of energy plus my inspirational story that other people can feel part of. And that's what we call the energy energizer. Yeah. And so, you know, not to sidetrack too much, but are you doing the tape method when you're sleeping? And was there a particular book that you read that got you going there? Was it Breath, isn't it? Yeah, it was Breath. Yeah, I read that last year. I started doing it and started having absolutely amazing sleeps and I went away from it and I felt recently like the sleeps are completely off and it affects you immensely, right? You wake up and you're tired, you need your coffee and then it just repeats. So I'm going to get back on it tonight. I think the beard got in the way, so I'm going to shave and then I'll, uh, and then uh, the beard's gone and I'll start with the strips again. And part of why I ask that is what really jumped out at me when I was reading about that energizer is, you know, the importance of our drive in being able to keep the team moving, keep the train moving. And one of the questions I had was, how do we keep our drive up? How do we keep our energy up? And so, you know, you said some of the things you're doing for someone who's you're just working with right out of the gate, and they don't do any of the things you're doing. They're not doing the headspace. They're not tracking their macros. They're not measuring their KPIs on their own health. Where do you get them to start, Colin? So I, I think it depends. I, I used my, because when I gave up golf, I took up triathlon and I got to half Ironman level and I'm a, I'm a big bloke. So, you know, me trundling my weight around on pavements didn't do my knees any good, but I took the concept of the three disciplines and the concept of core. So I took swim, I took cycling, I took running, and I took the core. And I started to deploy that into the work that I do with, uh, with individuals. And it's interesting. One of the ladies I mentioned in the book, Sarah Milne-Rose, wrote the book, The Shed Method. And I was talking with her last week, and we're doing similar work. So one of my old colleagues works with her as well, and they're doing work in high performance. But what I would tend to do is work with a person's need, greatest need at that time. So what I'm tend to come with is you'll come with an acute injury. So if you take the acute injury, you'll come with something which is I'm not sleeping right. Yep. Or I'm stressed. And so I would tend to work on either what's stressing them. Yep. And work back to tell me what is, what are the main issues? But I would start to explore what their patterns of practices and habits they have in their life. And what, for example, one of the things I first read about five or six years ago is that all successful people get up at 5 a.m. in the morning and they, you know, they, <laughs> I'm like, okay, I've got to get up at 5 a.m. in the morning. And now I'm reading Mark Wahlberg saying, you get up at four and f- you work out. And I'm like, okay. So I work with their practices about thinking. And again, the whoops picking this up for me. When is their right rhythm to sleep? When is their right rhythm to work if they have the opportunity to do that? But also I start to look at their, if they're not sleeping well, then are there small things that I could suggest and proffer as suggestions for them to work on? And it is amazing because the person I gave the, the mouth taping to, which came out of positive intelligence, came out of some breath work, came out of you know the, the, the book by on breath, then I gave them the taping thing and they've snored for 30 years. And the wife's texting me afterwards and going, what the bloody hell have you done to my husband? Because he's not snoring anymore. Yeah. Now, he's sleeping so much better because of that, which is fueling his strength in other areas to do that. So I tend to focus on one area that I can identify and work on. But there's a lot of people who, until you raise it, and this is the intense curiosity piece, until you raise it, you don't realize that they might snore, they might not sleep well, that that they have so much in their life that you didn't realize. And so quite a bit of his coaching uh, that I do, uh, work back, 
And if I can't get them to, to break a pattern, then I try to disrupt the pattern by going back to purpose identity, working in that, that route. But that's how I would start it. But it's this, this classic bit, isn't it? When I, used, when I didn't do all of this and I looked at people and went, Phew, meditation? Why would I want to do that? Yeah, I couldn't do that. 20 minutes. And I think, well, I can't do that because I'm commuting on a train. I'll look stupid if I'm sat there with my eyes closed and my hands and my, my thighs. All the excuses that I had, I start to adopt those with people that I'm working with and say, yeah, I was like you. Yeah. And all I did was one step at a time, one little bit at a time. Which one do you want to start on? Yeah. And it's amazing how many people will do it. Yeah. And you just nailed something right there is the importance of just starting, right? And starting small. How important is that for you in building the habits and a lot of the changes you've done in your life, Colin? It is fundamentally huge. And I'll give you one on the drive example. So I have a bad back, had a bad back. And one of the practices that I heard about is just hanging. Hanging from a bar is very good. And somebody said, and then you can build up to pull-ups. And I thought, well, I'm 15 stones. So I'm pulling up is going to be difficult. And they said, so try hanging for a while. So I tried hanging and it was amazing how it impacted. And then they said a bit like uh, Fogg's work on habit, they said, so try one pull-up. So all I did for about three months was I did one or two pull-ups a day and worked it up, just did the small bits. Now I'm up to 10, which for me is good, but I'm not seeing it as a, a finite game. I'm not saying here's 20, here's 30. It's for me, it's about, am I feeling better? Has my bad back gone away? Yes. But also a bit like you were saying before when you hadn't done the taping, I'm also more aware now about the impact through WHOOP and measurement about when I don't do something, how it impacts on me. So I went back up to Scotland to see friends where I come from, and I had a week of just drinking, eating, doing everything. And it was no surprise. My sleep was rubbish. My back was bad again. And therefore, that's how small incremental changes upwards are good. But also, if, if I can just go out and do five minutes exercise, I'll go do it. Yep. It's the other way around as well. And you were mentioning in there, you talked about if you can't break a habit, you disrupt it. And disruptor is your next system. Do you want to dive people into that system? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love the... If I go back to one of the stories built on habits and disruptors, James Clear's story about... He talked about the research when the Marines were in Vietnam and the drug problem they had. And they had this belief that when the Marines came back from Vietnam, the drug problem would be huge because they were all on heroin and the percentages were, were large in terms of... So they, they thought people were coming back and they would still have the heroin problem and they'd, they'd have to deal with that with the vets when they were coming back. But what they found was... The heroin problems didn't go away completely, but a lot of them went away. And they suddenly realized that the, the systems that they were in were different. And therefore, for me, the system, when they came, were in Vietnam, they had their friends, they had their bodies, they had the Vietnam, they had the... But when they came back to, say, San Francisco, it was very different. And therefore, that was a, a measurement for me. And the piece that I took on for that was design thinking and disruptor and experimentation. I met with a gentleman called Andrew Webster, who works for Experience Point, Canadian firm, who partnered with IDEO, largest design agency in the world, Tim Brown, CEO, brilliant man. And he gave me this gift of design thinking, which said, we're going to make mistakes, we're going to learn, we're going to prototype, we're going to observe humans in their environments. And from that, we're going to look patterns of behavior and observations and create insights. Then we're going to ideate. But the biggest thing for me was we're going to fail. You know, we're going to prototype test it. 
and 80% of the things are going to fail, but we're going to do it early and do it different. And I took this as I'd had a life of screw-ups in my view. So therefore I say, oh, well, I've been successful pretty much most of my life. So let's continue this. But I, I, I'll give you a story that really makes a, a difference for me. I went and worked one of our clients, Akamai, with a lady called Maureen Finn. And she didn't know me when I first came in. Somebody worked there who knew us. And so I started to do the work with Maureen. And I bought her into a contract that said, look, Maureen, we're going we're gonna to experiment and we're going to try different things for your leadership academies and we're going to fail. But as long as, to quote Drew Cameron, who is um, Accenture MD, when things are going well, run and tell you, go, I'll come and tell you. When things are going badly, I'm going to run and tell you that we're failing together. And we had this contract where we had the most difficult conversations when things were going badly, but we knew that it was towards a purpose. So we started experimenting together on the purpose of designing leadership academies that nobody else had experienced before. But a core piece that we had in there, which is a core part of the disruptor, is we said we were going to measure leadership development and we were going to win awards. So I remember in the room saying, imagine four years time that we're standing up on a stage and we're winning awards for our work. And three, three years later, we were figuratively standing up on a stage for the ATD and Brandon Hall Awards because we'd measured our progress through experimentation and what we've done in the leadership academies. So it's experimentation, but there's a core element of this, which is tough decision-making. When it's not going well, bin it. So 80% will be binned, 20% be successful. Therefore, every day I'm thinking, what are the two, three things I can experiment with, test, work? Now, you can imagine what that's like to work with when you're not used to it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that's half of it is the experimentation side. And the other half you talk about is the challenge side. What does that look like? Yeah. And the challenge is, is based on the lean startup, which is and this is where the advisory board that we have in place is a core part. So we put in place an advisory board for our business, but I would ask, I would suggest everybody for their career needs an advisory board. And these are three people you pick, not because you love them, you know, and I do love my advisory board, but not because you love them, but because they have a particular mindset, a level of challenge and a critical thinking. And this is where design thinking is the art of the possible. The challenge is the critical thinking where they're really challenging you to say, how much are you measuring this? What are your leading indicators telling you whether you're successful or not? And when the leading indicators are not giving the right information, when are you going to bin it? Yeah. So what are you going to stop doing in this? When are you going to stop doing this? is a core part of our philosophy in there. And an advisory board, I do it three times a year with my COO, and I can predict the halfway through, I will have my head on the table because I've been questioned left, right, and center by them about what we're doing and how we're doing things. But it's the most valuable investment I make as a business owner. Pay them to do it every time. And even now, they're the ones ringing me saying, how are you doing? But the other bit which is nice about this, uh, Clint, is... We did it as an experiment. So these three people we initially took on had never done non-executive or advisory roles before. So I made a contract with them saying, do you want to come and experiment with an advisory board and have a go at the new role? And by the way, we're going to learn together how we do this and whether we do it well or not. And it's worked. So that's, that's the challenge bit. And then the last role is the catalyst. What does that look like? So let me play with this a bit. So if, if we were listening to this podcast and somebody was saying, so hold on a second, there's been a lot of information fired up. McCollins gave me a lot of information, some great questions by Clint. What do I do with this? The catalyst is about how do you grow capability? And there's two roles. 
And if I'm not an accredited coach, so if there's anybody from the ICF out there, I coach, but I'm not an ICF member, International Coaching Federation member. And one of the reasons I always fought it is because I tend to have a blended conversation of a point of view and a coaching angle to to how I work with people. And most leaders have to balance this giving an opinion. So if you think past the challenge and somebody's challenged and said, this experiment's not working, you need to, then the next question that a lot of people will ask from the person who's been challenged is, so what would you suggest? And so the mentoring is, how do I have strong points of view as a leader and craft teachable points of view that I can give to other people? So for example, Andrew Webster's teachable points of view, which is, if a decision is binary, it's not a decision. Yep. So have multiple choices. Another point of view is, when things are going well, Drew Cameron, when things are going well, go and tell your client. When things are going badly, run and tell your client is a point of view. So that mentoring and crafting points of view is one part of the leader role in the catalyst. And then the other part is stepping back completely and believing they have all the answers, which is the coach piece. And how do you blend the two? All right, it's such a fine line because I, you know, I read the coaching habit and like you, I, I, I read a lot and I'm saying, okay, well, I'm going to step back and I'm just going to let this person have all the answers themselves. And depending on who it is in your team, I have, you know, a young woman who I've worked with for a decade and she just, after a while, looks at me and says, can you F off? Like, just give me the answer. I didn't, I'm not coming to you on this one for a coaching. I I just need the answer. (laughs) So when do you know to flip between those two roles? So there's a couple of things that I would add to that. One is um, Australian colleague and friend gave me this concept, which is do your people own or rent their roles? Yeah. And I love the concept because the renting is if you're renting, you're looking for the landlord, the boss to give you the ideas and thoughts and other pieces. If you're owning, and Jock Willock is one of the books I'm reading at the moment, he's got this concept of extreme ownership. If you haven't read it, it's powerful, which is extreme ownership, which a leader owns all the errors. They are accountable for everything that goes wrong in there. However, there's this piece about that if they own their role, yeah, then they're going to be looking after the house. They're not going to be asking for permission. They're going to be asking for forgiveness. So I do believe that there's a the way for a leader to get better at these conversations is to teach the people who work for them how they firstly own their own roles. Yeah. So have they got clarity about expectations? Do they understand? Are they willing to challenge back up to you? Are they willing to ask you questions as a leader and the owner? And that, that's a bit of putting a value set, role modeling that to them in meetings so that they, they build psychological safety to be able to do that. And then the second bit then allows you to do a couple of things in there, which is one is at the beginning of a conversation, brief back, check back. So if you've given them expectations of a role or a task, and Jocko talks about this, but my old colleague used to give me the brief back thing. Once you've given them a task and you've explained it to them, then the first question you ask is, so talk back to me, tell me what you believe I've asked you to do. And that's what they call brief back. And it's amazing how often you realize that they've got the wrong end of the stick or they've missed out a a detail in there. So if you've done brief back, then what it allows you to do, and they've got clarity of their role, expectation, they own their role, what it allows you then to do is check back, which is tapping in, Michael Bungie standing here, what's on your mind? Well, I've got two or three things. I think one of them is I'd love your point of view. And the other one is I'd love to just bounce something off you. Now, already they've used the language which says one of them is you telling me something. The other one is I'd love to bounce something off so I can ask some coaching questions. But by empowering them with the language, you've started to have a more sophisticated conversation that can happen in five minutes. That's a beautiful one. Brief back, check back. Sorry, keep going. 
No, no, no. It's it, it, I just I always remember my old boss used to say, how often, Colin, have you walked along the corridor to my office and then stopped at the door and realized that you've got the answer in your head? And I used to do it all the time. And I was like, yeah. And he said, well, okay, my coaching's working. The So I, I know we're getting pretty late in, in the conversation, but something looking back at that you brought up, and it really jumps out at me because the what I love in this conversation and what I love in the podcast, you've referenced a lot of books, a lot of great thinkers. And it's clear to me, Colin, that you have a growth mindset. And so you're always looking to change, to evolve, to leave the safety of the harbor and take on new challenges. And you listened to that podcast with Dan Carter, and he was talking about how to get people out of the harbor. Because there's so many people who don't think they can change. They don't think that they can grow or learn all of the things you've talked about today. How do we get them moving? How do we get them out of the harbor so that they can implement some of what we've talked about today in their life? I think it's uh, probably the best question that you could have asked because I, I think it's there's a couple of areas that we're exploring. And, and it's interesting because one of them is immersion. So immersing people in something, getting them to test it. It's a bit like my, you know, my daughters taking them to a new restaurant, different type of food and immersing them and then getting them to test something. And I always remember when we were growing up, we used to, um, they loved chicken. Yep. So we then introduced pink chicken, which was actually salmon. But because we call it pink chicken, they would eat it. Now you call, could call that deception, but they then realized they loved salmon. But if you think about immersion, how do we get people immersed into a conversation, which is different? And so we've used a number of things. One, we've used the actors. So the whose line is it anyway? If you remember the comedy show, we get two actors and we start a conversation and we get people to have that conversation with the two actors and the audience have a remote control that they can play with. So a bit like watching a reality TV show, they can listen into the two actors having a conversation. They can give feedback to one of the actors and adjust that conversation. And then they can start to tweak and change it, but they can start to have a go at that conversation um, and take over the hot seat to work it. So that's one way we get people in. Firstly, to realize that their language or their attitude or what they're trying to do is has some strengths, but also has some downsides because their colleagues can then pause them and stop them, give them feedback and take over. And I always just, I think on the immersion side for this, whether it's um, trying the taping one night while you're sleeping and see how it impacts and realize you wake up feeling so much more refreshed. Trying meditation for, for longer than probably one or two days, but seeing how it impacts you. So we get people to do either small habits or we get them to immerse into something. And once they're in the, that immersion space, then we get them to break it down into new practices that they could take on and work on and habits. Now, my biggest thing to get people to, to change and shift and get to the point where that they can work it is probably a combination of three things. One is conscious purpose towards something. As The Rock would say, you know, if, if you're failing forward towards something, it's more empowering. So what are you working towards? So be clear about your purpose um, to, to get there. Second thing that is, is break it down into the task. So a bit like Dan Carter said, how many kicks are you going to take? What's your role? What are you working on? I think the third thing is putting them into a team to get them in a team thinking. And what we found is actually, bizarrely in the pandemic, when you've got people on Zoom calls, the introverts are more willing to speak up in the Zoom environment than they were in the, you know, the face-to-face -face environment. And 
you know, I've got a friend who's head of the MBTI uh, organization, and he said, can't make sweeping statements, but there's some evidence to say that the type of environment and what we're finding with virtual reality is if you put people into virtual reality where they are switched off completely, but they're in a team context, it's amazing how true behaviors come out and shift and they see them immediately. And as one of my colleagues said to the, uh, to the, the other colleague who I know well, and they were in this virtual reality, at one point they said, oh, will you shut up? You're always talking. And so the, uh, the other colleague said, oh, I'm really, really sorry. And the other person said, and you do it all the time. And it's the first time they did address the feedback. So firstly, putting in the team context, but the secondly, in the virtual reality where there's suddenly the true behaviors that are in there, it's a powerful piece. So those are probably three or four things that I would do, but the team concept and team learning is massive. Yeah. And something you hit on there that I didn't want to get away without asking about was the importance of having refreshingly direct conversations with our teammates, with our colleagues, with those in our life. How, what is a, for, for our listeners who didn't read, the book or who haven't read Fierce Conversations, which, which you referenced and I was in love with when I read it, what is a refreshingly direct conversation and how do we have them? So there's a principle I'll take from Fierce, which is that they say not every conversation needs to be a fierce one or a refreshingly direct one. Yeah. So a lot of people believe that they are they need to have these very deep and sincere conversations with everybody. And, you know, when you're ordering your coffee in the morning, that's not the time for a fierce conversation or refreshingly direct conversation. So normally the key measure is when something feels wrong and your value set or your conviction part is starting to flag that you need to, to address something, then start to, to think about how you're going to hold that conversation. Now, that can be something that you work up to. You know that something's happened. You need to address some feedback and it's going to be a fierce conversation. The second bit is when it happens in a room and suddenly things escalate yep, and work in there. Now, the refreshing bit is the calling of a behavior that's happening in the room yep, that people might not have stopped. So if you've escalated in a room, the biggest thing is a mindset of holding, I only hold 50% of the truth. The other person holds the other 50% of the truth. And therefore, the fierce conversations, that's their principle. They say, don't back out the conversation, but if you hold that mindset, then you bring in what we were talking about before, which is curiosity, yeah? which is I'd love to understand more about your position. I'd like to empathize. I'd like to have more sage attitudes, bringing in positive intelligence here to work on and understand why you feel that, what's in there. And the more you dig and what else and what else and what else to, to bring the questions, you're getting their views and points of view in there. The second thing that we, we talk about is deflecting that from the personalities into something. Now, I used this with a, a CEO that I was working with, and we deflected one of his real conflict conversations onto a whiteboard. So we started to draw the jigsaw puzzle of what the problem was about. And again, there's a brilliant author, Leanne Davey, one of your fellow Canadians, who's just, she's written The Good Fight. And she talks about this. She talks about that conflict is good. Positive conflict is good. So we need to create it. So actually to get the opposing sides to map out where their issues and where their thoughts are, yeah, that is good. But to get a visual of it so that you're, you're crafting all the ideas and working on there. And then the final bit, which is the direct bit, is where you feel that you still are not being heard or you feel that you, are, you need to be listened to is firstly listening. Seek first to be understood. Then pass on your peace. But be aware of, you know, assertiveness was, as a German friend, Colin, you spend millions of pounds in the UK teaching people how to be assertive. In Germany, we just say no. So why do you do that? You know, there's a, but the assertiveness piece in there is stating 
what you believe, stating your feelings that they can't argue with, and then discussing how you find resolution. So the refreshing is that you're holding the space. Yep, your 50% of the truth is happening. Your natural curiosity, you're digging into it. The direct bit is stating very clearly your points of view. And most people that I know will avoid conflict with what I call half tackling into the issue rather than really fully tackling into an issue to be clear about what they want out of the situation and what they believe the situation is. So that's what we would call refreshingly direct. Yeah. So when they're half tackling, they're not willing to fully dive into that conversation. They're just willing to beat around the edges and be unhappy, but not say it. Yeah. And a bit of the language. Yeah. I possibly think you might not have grasped what I'm feeling about this rather than, you know, this is what I'm feeling. Yeah. And I have a right to feel that, but I also have responsibility to understand why you feel the way you feel to come into that space. So most people will do it, which is, you know, it's a bit like giving feedback. I love the way you're looking today. It's great. And now can I give you feedback? Or I really feel this is not about me. This is about how other people feel um, into those conversations. So what we were talking about and when we say refreshingly direct is be clear about what the issue is before you get in the room, realize why you're doing it. Because if it's just to get something off your chest, don't do it. But if it is really, really important, then establish their 50% of it, your 50% of it. And then in a lot of ways, this comes to a negotiation in the end. Can you negotiate something in terms of, or can you get both sides? And it's amazing how often sometimes the conflict is not there, it's just perception. So getting into that space. But if you don't tackle hard and you aren't clear what you want and clear why you're raising it, a lot of people leave the room with a lack of clarity of whether there was conflict or not, or whether it was a, what the hell was happening into that room. That's what we mean by refreshingly direct. And if you go in and you're going to have the conflict, you better come out with something. Otherwise, what was the point of the conflict? And no one leaves happy and nothing's resolved. Colin, is there anything that we haven't covered today in our conversation that you want to get across to our listeners? I, I think there's a couple of bits that's, um, that I would take and I would put it and add into this. The, the one big bit is life balance, which we've touched on, but people are reading the book and saying how to be an outstanding leader. There's a lot in this book, which is about how to be an outstanding influencer, influencing without authority in there. So for me, this concept of leadership, I believe that leaders are everybody. Everybody has a leadership role, so they should be taking something. And so I'm hoping there's something in there for everybody to pick on. Uh, what I'm suggesting to, to your listeners is that the book is not the answer to all the problems. It's the start of a journey to explore. And already I'm looking at next iterations of my thinking and my work. And I'd love people to join in with that thinking. So the 500 is one of those routes that we're taking to explore how we increase equity in, in careers. But again, I'd love to have, get people's feedback on the book, other thoughts, a bit like you've done with the CBT today, get the different thinking into there. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of us from Michael Bungistani, Leanne Davey, all these people who are a part of a community now that want to just create positive change in leadership, disrupt the way we're, we're, we're leading people. And that's what we're part of. Yeah. It's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for joining me today on The Pursuit of Learning. I enjoyed it. Excellent. Thank you, Clint. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on The Pursuit of Learning. Make sure to hit the subscribe button and head over to our website, thepursuitoflearning.com, where you will find our show notes, transcripts, and more. If you like what you see, sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, your host in learning, Clint Murphy. Clint Murphy.